You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. As a crisis reaches the point where we experience spiritual and psychic dissolution, contemplation takes the form of a freefall through our carefully woven safety nets of normalcy. We let go of our narratives, our plans, the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and where we come from. We toss our resumes or CVs to the winds and finally realize with regard to our corporate or social climbing, there is no there there. When a crisis impacts a community, we collectively plunge into a space of stillness and unknowing, a shared interiority of potential and spiritual rebirthing. Whether we like it or not, our personal destiny is interwoven with the well-being of the community. After each crisis, questions loom. Will we rise to the occasion and allow the planet to recover from our toxic greed? Or will we continue to destroy our planet, our only home? A crisis forces those caught in its clutches to come to terms with the fact that life as we knew it may never be the same. When the crisis strikes, the response from the village must be a pause. There's little that we can do, but we can be. We can listen. We can love our neighbors. And we can host the spirit that flutters over every dawning day. In the midst of what seems like collective madness, I still have hope. But it's a woke hope with eyes wide open. Despite all evidence to the contrary, I insist on seeing our current state of affairs as the rupture of one state of being that will prepare us for another reality. From the Center for Action and Contemplation, I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We. Hey, Dr. B, this is going to be a a great session. I'm excited that we have the opportunity to begin a conversation uh, centered around your most recent work, Crisis Contemplation, Healing the Wounded Village. Um, This is a very very important work. And uh, maybe we can maybe look at this conversation like a fireside chat. And uh, let's just jump right into it. And so today, we really want to focus on chapter one, just maybe explore some of the ideas and the concepts that you bring out in chapter one. Uh, Chapter one is uh, really centered around the concept of crisis. And so uh, let's just start there. Let's just maybe introduce this piece, this work, Crisis Contemplation, to our audience and get right into chapter one. And let's just go back and forth and see and see how this unfolds. How about that? Oh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> but, you know, I do want to be clear that just because you feel called to write something, you know, doesn't mean you have a complete grasp of it. I have been grappling with this idea for a number of years. And as you know, Donnie, I've been teaching for a while. But, you know, the difference is I've always taught something that someone else taught me. And it's only recently, you know, since I've been retired, 
that I've been willing to teach experiential wisdom, you know, of the elders, to teach what I don't know, what I've just glimpsed. So in this book, what I'm trying to do is teach the mystical possibilities, you know, those spaces in life that we're not quite clear of. So there's no definitive answers here, just explorations of possibility. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that, Dr. B. That's really a great uh, way of of framing this conversation, that this is uh, based upon experience, but it has insights from years and years and years of, of wisdom, but not only your wisdom, but ancient wisdom that is packed into this. So let's jump right into it. Yeah, you know, the, it begins um, when I was working in the first edition of Joy Unspeakable in 2008. And while I was dealing with the chapter on slavery, it occurred to me that slavery, Holocaust, uh, Native American genocide are beyond normal suffering. A- and that's because these atrocities far exceed the limits of our human imagination. You know, so it's inevitable If you experience something catastrophic like that, there's going to be a shattering of the human spirit. And I mean, that happens just because even though we're not aware of it, we're more than skin and bone. You know, we're consciousness, we're we're soul, we're expressions of divine love. And when we crack open, when we crack wide open like that, what's in us comes out. And um, before we begin the conversation about that cracking, I wrote this poem that is in Joy Unspeakable that points toward that shattering. And I'm not certain that its words can capture all of what happens, but it's the closest I've come. And it's this. I'm cracked open now, no longer drifting, running past their hate and mine. Tipping past, come here, gal. I'm cracked open now, looking for myself. Maybe I spilled into the cleft of the rock, hiding from the slave-catching dogs. Maybe I died, trying too hard to birth myself sane. I'm cracked, not broken, still searching for me amid the shards of God's broken heart. That's what crisis contemplation feels like, if there are any words that come close. Wow. It's like a sense of God-forsakenness, right? Um, A sense of a struggle. There's this tension, this experience of loss or grief that is experienced individually, but you're starting to really, as as I... I'm hearing you're you're really focusing on not just the individual crisis, right, and the experience of uh, the invitation that that crisis invites us to experience this the contemplative experience, but you're really leaning into, and I think this is a key takeaway from from your work of the communal experience. So it begins with that, yes, or you call it the communal or the village experience or the tribal experience of that crisis. And I think this is critical for me because many times in my own personal journey, we tend to experience and deal with crisis at the individual level. We tend to look at what's happening to me, what I am losing and what I have lost or what I feel or how this impacts me, right? Or 
my pocketbook or my relationship or my emotional stability, right? So there is this kind of experience at the individual level that I think is critically important. We don't want to shortchange that. We don't want to discount that because I think that's where we start. But this chapter is inviting us to frame and understand how crisis can be experienced at the communal level or crisis experienced at the village level or the tribal level or the national level or the global level is critically important also. Yes. I mean, when you're, when you're experiencing crisis as an individual, that's what St. John of the Cross is talking about when he talks about the dark night of the soul. You're wrestling with God. You're doing what you need to do to handle what's coming up out of you that you don't understand. It's personal. Um, you're getting a divorce. Your your child is ill. You're experiencing sickness yourself, or you're just having the catastrophe of everyday life. And there are certainly enough daily catastrophes for all of us. But that's not the same thing. Crisis contemplation seems to come together when a group of people encounter, and I I use three categories to talk about it. The event is without warning. The second thing is that you or the people upon whom it, it is inflicted, they can't do anything about it. There is no recourse. And so you're kind of caught There is no place to go in the hold of a slave ship. There is nothing to be done when you're walking from North Carolina as a Native American to Oklahoma. You are caught. And so something else has to arise to keep you going, to enliven your spirit, to help you to survive if survival is in the cards. And it's that spirit that emerges when the breaking occurs. You know, you find it in absolutely every single culture. The Chinese call this spirit chi. The Egyptians call it mat. Hindu call it prana. And in the first chapter of the book, I talk about Kuzupa Nalwamba's concept of mupasi. And that's what, that's an African description of a spirit that dwells within all of us. It's individual, but also communal. Because our skin is not a boundary that holds stuff in. You know, you can't keep your consciousness within your skin. You can't keep your heartbeat within your skin even. And so this mupasi, when you are all suffering in conflict like that, it is that vital spiritual voice that weaves the lives of all of us into an inseparable bond. It makes reality one whole. It gives kinship to all of us. So, you know, when you think about it, that means that loving our neighbors is not just a little, you know, anecdote Mm -hmm. or a possibility. With the moving of the spirit, it's inherent to our being. For where the spirit abides, there's always unity. What came to mind as I was reading the book when you when you mentioned, and I'm gonna go back to these three areas that you you identify as kind of uh, the, they're always present. You said that it's, you know, the event is unexpected. The individuals within the community are unprepared and the individuals within the community cannot do anything about it. And as I begin to really just consider and process, I started doing some research and I say, wow, that's absolutely correct, right? 
that's that's kind of the nature of what chaos uh, and crises look like, right? That's that is the essence. You're, you're, it came unexpectedly, so you were not and you were not prepared, right? You didn't. There was no preparation that you can do. So the resources are typically not available to handle, to process, to to navigate or to negotiate that crisis. And ultimately, you find that as you're intellectually trying to figure it out, that as you're looking within your external resources, you realize that there is nothing you can do to stop it. And this is the connection here. I, I love the, the reference to Mupazi because it is this in living... So that crisis becomes the vehicle, and I think you use language like that in the book, or the avenue or the pathway, I believe you use, to experience this universal connectedness, right? The, the mupasi, the end living, yes. but also, Dr. B, all-encompassing, right? So it's just not yes. the end living, but it's all-encompassing. You realize that it's all-enveloping, that there is this, and you use the word web, there is an interconnectedness that there is a, a weaving, there is a pattern, that there is something that is happening that is beyond us. And that invitation is to be present with it, to see it differently, to reframe the pain, to reframe the loss, to reframe the, the negativity, right? The, the consciousness yes, that we have yes. that this is something that is designed to take me out, but maybe, maybe not, right? Yeah, but you see that here's the problem. We have treated the Holy Spirit as if it were a domesticated pet. Uh, you have a description in New Testament of the Holy Spirit as a wild bird. Mm -hmm. um, all mm -hmm. kinds of things start happening. And we sing that song, come, Holy Spirit, come. Oh, yeah, well, do you really uh, want that? And Because there is going to be sweeping change. You're going to be required to love people you don't like. You're going to be required to do things you may not want to do. I mean, there is the Holy Spirit sweeps clean, brings change, unites, connects, and reveals the unity that's always there but seems to be hidden. But let me ask you this, Danny. Let's put that three-part test to the test, okay? Okay. Because okay. in another part of the book, I talk about the pandemic of racism, mm. okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm ref I'm implying that racism is a crisis. Well, I was thinking about it a couple of days ago, and it occurred to me, it is not a crisis in America at oh. all. Because if you use the paradigm you just talked about, it's unexpected. Is racism unexpected in America? No, not no, not at all. Okay, are we unprepared? No, not at all. <laughs> Okay. Can we do something about it? Of course. Of yeah. course we can. Can we take rogue police officers out? Of course, of course not. But can we resist? Are we looking at racism as what it is? It is a principality. It is a power. I am drawn to Ephesians. We wrestle not against rulers. We, we, we're wrestling against powers and principalities and the rulers of darkness in high places, okay? So you don't approach a spiritual opponent the way you would approach a normal wrestling match because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you're not going to get a pin. You're not going to—you can't even hold on to it. 
Racism keeps shape-shifting because it's not an entity that we can control. It's not an unforeseen crisis. It is a context. It's a circumstance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is something we know about, we have created, and for reasons, and there are many, we, we don't have time to talk about all the reasons, it's a convenient help to us. We don't want to dislodge it entirely. But we can, we could, we have the power to. So it doesn't fit as a crisis. As each young person is murdered, each unarmed young person is murdered by the police, or, you know, any other event occurs of that nature, whether the person is black, brown, or white, we feel it's a crisis when there is a gun violence situation. We call it a crisis. Is it a crisis? Is it unexpected? Are we unprepared? Can we do something about it? Yeah, no, this is good. I think from a, from a pure, and I don't want to say academic, but when you begin to look at the definition and how we use language and how we use words, right? You're making a really valid distinction, Dr. B, that maybe uh, calling racism or the pa racism a pandemic, which implies it is a crisis, is not appropriate here, right? Because there right. is something that we can do about it. There is, you know, training, there is education, there is, you know, there are things that we can possibly do. You can't necessarily change people's minds, but are things that we can do to appropriately deal with some of these issues that you're talking about. And I would just like to add that anything that causes division, anything that causes separation, anything that causes, let's say, a lack of togetherness, all right? And I'm using that language because we just gave definition to uh, the ancient term mupazi. Uh, you know, we kind of talked about that as, and you used the term Holy Spirit. For those people who may not understand, Dr. B was was alluding to, you know, some ancient language that talks about it from a, the divine spirit. So essentially mupazi or chi, uh, right, are, are really the same words that speak to the same universal truth that there is a divine creative spirit. Correct. And so that spirit unifies that that spirit brings together that spirit heals that spirit, you know, ultimately intends to make whole that which is broken. And anything that goes against that is anti that. Right. It is against that. Uh, and I think that's critical. So when we begin to, you know, try to see things through a lens of con a contemplative lens. Right. To listen, we'll, we're able to now see policy and see um, behaviors and see, you know, ideas that ultimately are anti what is designed to bring together. Yes. But, you know, they often, um, we spend a lot of time identifying the problem, but we don't talk too much about solutions. And um, I think given the amount of crisis we have in the world today, solutions are what it's all about. And what I tried to do, and I certainly didn't come up with every solution or every potential solution, but I did identify three benefits of crisis contemplation. Because, you know, what is the point of breaking open, shattering, you know, where the divine spirit has to heal you and knit you back together again? Um, and what I came up with, and the listeners may have a different idea about this, uh, but I see it as crisis contemplation becoming a refuge. If you think about it, when all around you is beyond your control, 
and you shatter. Um, you find within you a space, I think Howard Thurman talks about it, an inner island that no one can breach without your permission. There's a space of solitude. There's a space of peace, a refuge that allows you to begin to gather yourself again, if gathering is what is necessary. The second benefit was it becomes a wellspring of discernment in your disordered life space. In other words, there is this moment of shattering where you can do nothing and you have an opportunity to be still. I mean, we are told, be still and know that I am God, but how many of us allow time to be still or even have the capability? Our nervous systems are such a jangle that sitting still can also be torture for some of us. But when you have no choice, there's an opportunity to discern what comes next. Because many of us are operating on instinct and just operating on uh, impulse. And there is a way to live where you're operating out of discernment, where there is a knowing that is beyond yours. And the third category for benefit is that crisis contemplation offers an anvil for forming a new identity. And I use anvil purposely. I was thinking of, you know, shaping horseshoes and hitting things with hammers, with forges and such. And yeah, it's hard and sparks are flying and it's painful. But out of each of the crises I described, um, even the Holocaust and uh, the removal of Native Americans and the immigration uh, crisis that we're in, there is the formation of new identities, new spiritual identities and new identities to help you uh, traverse and journey through life. You're tapping into what oftentimes I think is some misunderstood theology within the Christian circles. We have a lot of that, don't we? <laughs> And but but I like what you're saying because crisis, it literally forces those caught in the web of the crisis to come to terms with the facts of life as we knew it, in the facts that that may never be the same as you say in the book, and and this crisis actually, as you say, it becomes the the platform, the foundation, if you will, for transformation, spiritual transformation, and and you're right, in the in the Christian church we call it new creation or, you know, new beginning, right? Or new life, new birth, right? And you called it new identity. And I think those are all one and the same. There is a transformation, a transforming that takes place. And crisis becomes the foundation. It's the, the substratum that allows or enables that type of transformation. It is not really a religious experience. It is a human experience. This is a universal human experience for all people, right? So it's not just for some, it is for all. And I think that's critically important here. And I, I say that in a context because there is a lot of bad theology out there that argues one thing over another that ultimately becomes an anti. It creates more separation, more division than it does more togetherness. And that can be another podcast episode.
Is There Life After Doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. I love what you're saying, though. The solution that I'm hearing you argue is we can listen. We can hear. And that stood out to me. There there is a sentence in in the chapter that says that we can listen. And that I had to underline that, Dr. B, because even from a personal, you know, improvement standpoint, there are times I realize I can listen better. I, I need to listen more. (laughs) But you argue that it is in the crisis moments that we can hear the clearest. Yeah, you know, um, we theologians have a a habit of making nice talk around really difficult situations. And when the people hear it, they know perfectly well that that's not what life really is like. And so I want to be careful and not make it sound like this shattering, the situations of communal breaking you just suddenly you go to nirvana. You know, you're in the middle of a holocaust. There's no nirvana. And so the question people listening might wonder is, how do you get a state of peace out of suffering and shock, disaster and oppression? How, do, how does that happen? Well, you know, there's no formula for it. But we do know that nothing lasts forever. We say, uh, weeping may endure for a night. <laughs> But joy comes in the morning. And I'm not sure there is ever a joy in the way in which we think about joy in the midst of these situations. But there is a sense of peace. It's not the normal sense of peace. I think that's what, when Jesus says, I give you peace, but not like the world. It's a different kind of peace. This is a different kind of discernment. It's a different kind of insight. In the slave ships, what you're doing is independent human beings, Africans, tribes, nations, all of different languages and cultures are going to have to become a new community. They are being forged into a new community, whether they like it or not. There has to be, that's a birthing process, really. And birthing doesn't take place on TV or all out loud. It takes place in the womb, in the darkness, 
It takes place away from the site. And so we don't always see how this occurs, but we do know that what comes out on the other side of it is an African diasporan community that begins to heal itself through new rituals, the development of new culture, keeping some of the old and wedding it to what's new. And all of this is like what you said, rebirth, rebirth. So nobody wants crisis contemplation, but I don't think we have a whole lot of choices about it. It is the nature of life. You referenced earlier Psalm 46, and I believe uh, verse 10, where it states, be still, the psalmist writes, be still and know that I am God. That really kind of underlines this chapter. It speaks to the type of stillness that leads to knowing, that leads to transformation, that leads to the converting of our individual suffering into a type of compassion that can ultimately manifest communal healing. When I look at that text, actually, if you look at the, you know, the next verse, it actually says a little bit more where conventionally that's like, be still the person who the pain is afflicted upon, be still and know that I am God. But that verse 10 also says, I will be exalted among the nations, I'll be exalted in the earth. And some theologians, Dr. B, argue that be, the stillness is not only a, an invitation for those who are receiving the affliction, but also for those who are actually doing the affliction. So there are some scholars who argue that when he says, be still and know that I am God, that the God was actually declaring that, hey, I will be exalted. There's going to there's, there's gonna come a time that even in the, in the community of those who are instigating the affliction, I will be exalted. Yes. I will be made known. Right? There's a knowing. There will be a time where you will hear from me or you will listen. So it's interesting when you really look at this in a state of communal, if you will, um, from a communal perspective. I just want to see if you had any thoughts about just that interpretation, because as I was studying this and I was looking at this, I said, wow, you know, it, this is even broader than, than jo- those who are just within the community who are, who are experiencing the crisis that maybe there is some something to glean from that this is actually at a univer- at a cosmic level a universal level right even broader than just those who are experiencing crisis but may even have some some lessons for those who are actually doing the creating of the crisis Oh, absolutely. The wisdom keeps coming, and the more I engage the subject, the more um, new thoughts come and new research comes. And what I'm beginning to understand about this, which is not in the book, is that um, it is a crisis of the spirit for those who inflict oppression as well, just as you said. But the crisis doesn't take place at the same time. Mm. Elaborate, please, it do. Please elaborate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is just coming to me, so, you know, it's not completely well thought out. It is it's very fresh. But if you are a Nazi soldier and you are part of the process of exterminating Jewish people, innocent Jewish people, the crisis of your spirit is ongoing. The people who are experiencing it immediately are, you know, they are killed, they are maimed, they are harmed. You think you're fine. You go home to dinner. You act as if nothing has happened. But the crisis is building within your spirit because you are connected. Your false myths about your individualism, you're okay, I'm okay, you're okay, is false. 
because Teilhard de Chardin, every scientist, everyone is telling us there is an implicate and explicate order and we are all connected. So if you harm one, you harm yourself. And it may not show up right away. It might take decades, but the harm will come because it's been inflicted. So you have created a crisis within your own spirit, your own soul, and within your own physical body by inflicting harm on others. <laughs> Can we just sit with that for a moment? My grandmother used to say, if you do harm to somebody, just get a chair and sit by the road because it's coming back to you. That was the old folks' way of saying the same thing. It is not because God takes retribution against you. It's not because of revenge. It's not because of what goes around comes around. It's because of the nature of the universe. You are connected. If you harm one thing, you get hurt also. You have just harmed yourself. If you stab one human, you might as well have two knives and stab yourself. It's the same. You are harming yourself. As you were talking about this, this oneness that we have between individuals and humanity, oftentimes opposition, it came to mind the Shema prayer. Hear, O ah. Israel, the Lord our God is one. And if you utilize that and kind of take it back to Psalm 46, um, be still and know that I am God. Maybe another way of stating this is be still and know that I am one. Oh my goodness, that's wonderful. Yes. Right. And if you contemplatively sit with that, not only are you reminded of the oneness that you have with this mupazi, this all-encompassing, all-in-living spirit, the Holy Spirit, as you indicate, the divine spirit, the creative spirit, but you begin now to see the universal oneness that you have with each other, right? And so... Okay, okay Donnie, you're making the Trinitarians <laughs> nervous now. <laughs> I'm just elaborating on what we're discussing at this fireside chat here. Yeah, I'm joking with you because, um, you know, Trinitarians tend to think that we have divided God into three equal pieces, you know? And in fact, what you are stating is the truth of the matter. God is one. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the manifestations or the ways in which it, the appearance occurs or the ways in which we name it, we have no words to reach out to explain or describe God. We don't have any. And so our little descriptors, and we can call it Trinitarian, and of course, you know, the Trinitarians and the oneness Pentecostals don't get along all that well, because <laughs> one says there's only one God, and one says, oh no, there's three manifestations, but it's all one thing. And our descriptors have nothing to do with reality. Many of the scientists, uh, Brian Swim for one, talk about the fact that we've created a language to make us content with the realities that we fictionalize, you know, and it's for our convenience. So we can live on a planet that we don't really understand. And we can be okay with the fact that we don't know where we came from and we don't know where we're going. And so we have to have some boundaries. We set them mm -hmm. verbally. Mm -hmm. And so we decide certain things. And in our religions, we do the same thing. But the spirit of the universe, the spirit that is divine is one. 
And there's no way to explain that in our, our language that allows us to have any deep knowing that comes from contemplation. So you got to sit with that. That's, that's not knowledge you can read and just memorize. You have to sit with yeah. it. And, and the beauty is that life, part of the genius of life is that in chaos and crisis, as you indicate, it, it becomes the, the schoolmaster. It becomes the, the system that leads us to be able to experience this deep knowing, this deep love, this, this, this expression that, of kindness that otherwise we would never know, right? That otherwise we would never be able to intellectualize or even internalize. So, you know, here's a question. Um, Brian McLaren, he said this, and, and maybe even on our one of our podcasts, previous podcasts, that, um, you know, he learned from Dallas Willard, a mentor of his, that, you know, oftentimes the systems that we are a part of are designed to do what the systems were intended to do from that design. It may be some of the problems that are reinforcing some of this, the crises are systematized, right? Maybe there are some structures, if you will, that are built up <laughs> to reinforce the unexpected, to reinforce the unpreparedness and to take advantage of that for others. So I, I don't know if you had any thoughts around that. And I know he says this, uh, Dr. Willie indicate that, you know, he asked, he poses a question that what, what would it look like if we deconstructed those systems or took those systems apart and we reconstructed or reestablished systems that were built upon the premise of love, ultimately tr producing people in communities and uh, in villages that were intended to reflect the ultimate source of love. Well, what we would first have to do is admit that they're doing harm. We're unwilling to do that. We set up systems to act on our behalf. We can't all police everything, so we create police departments. But then when they go rogue or they no longer represent what you want, or they are acting on your behalf in ways that are not beneficial, we tend not to want to do anything about it, or we pretend that we can't do anything about it. So, I mean, the first thing is to first say, we these, these systems are us. The police department, they're not an alien force from another planet. We set it up. They are us. And so we do have the ability to do something about what's going on. All of the systems, the economic systems, all the systems we set in place, when they are doing something that they are, that we set it up to do, but it begins to harm and does not do the good that was intended, then it is our responsibility to do something, to change it, to get rid of it, to reestablish it, to reform it. We cannot just turn our heads and work with our eyes cast downward as if nothing is going on and then be shocked when there are issues. So it does require an understanding that we are the system. I don't like systems and what they do, but I'm part of the system. I help create the systems. We have to take responsibility for what we've done. And maybe it wasn't us. Maybe it was a generation ago 
<laughs> Maybe it was many generations ago. But the harm is still being done. And so, you know, I, I would just ask people to assess what they're calling a crisis. Is it really a crisis? Did it come without warning? Are you unprepared for it? And are you unable to do anything about it? And if none of those things are true, then this is something within your grasp, something you can do something about, something you can make change occur, something that can allow the fresh breath of the Spirit. You said something a, a while back, Donnie, you were saying, yeah, we, you know, we need to have some solutions and, and we need more training for police if we're talking about police and we need better economic and tax systems. But um, we always reach for uh, solutions that we know will not work. When you talk about police training, you don't have to train police not to instantly kill white unarmed teenagers. You don't. They know not to do that. So it isn't training. The solutions aren't that easy. We have to sit together. We have to talk together. We have to discern together. We have to be creative enough to build new ways of being together. The old ways aren't working. Now that's a crisis. Yeah, no. Getting to know, right? Becoming familiar with um, is part of it. I, I would say this you stated that if it's not a crisis, we can do something about it. I totally agree, Dr. B. And to extend on that, if it is unexpected and you are unprepared and there is nothing that you can do, you make an argument. There is still one thing you can do. And that thing is, you can listen, you can sit, you can allow yourself to experience this contemplative invitation of the crisis, of the thing that you cannot do anything about. You can be silent, you can hear, you can listen, you can be converted. That individual pain can be converted through listening, through hearing, right? You know, Donnie, what if, just what if a crisis is an invitation, a portal, an opening toward a new way of being? A wormhole for all of my Marvel Comics yes. uh, aficionados. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because you're not going to get to it any other way. We're talking about, oh, we're going to take a transcendent leap from where we are to this or that. And, and we've been jumping at the sun for how many decades? And we're still where we are. And what if crisis is the opening, the portal that is the way toward change? That, as many have said, including Father Richard Rohr, that the way, the pathway is through suffering. And the suffering comes to the group, and the suffering comes to the individual and says, come with me, and let's see what can be. If you stay still, don't try to solve it yourself, you know? And you're open to new ways of being. Because, I mean, we have to admit that we will not change unless something gets shattered. We have our habits, we're comfortable, and unless something drastically changes, um, we will not see in new ways. 
I want to end this session, if you're ready, Donnie, to mm-hmm. um, to close out with um, just a closing moment. Yeah. And it's from the book, and it says, A crisis forces those caught in its clutches to come to terms with the fact that life as we knew it may never be the same. When the crisis strikes, the response must be a pause. There's little that we can do, but we can be. We can listen. We can love our neighbors. We can host the Holy Spirit that flutters over every dawning day. Ashe. Ashe. Thank you, Donnie. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Dr. B. Thanks for listening to this episode on crisis. As we bring this episode to a close, we invite you to take note on the crisis that you may be experiencing in your individual life or within your community. As Dr. B says in Crisis Contemplation, a crisis forces those caught in its clutches to come to terms with the fact that life as we knew it may never be the same. When the crisis strikes, the response from the village must be a pause. And that's what we'll discuss in our next episode on contemplation. Thanks for listening. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.